We're going to read from God's Word now. We're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 4, and I think Lisa's going to read for us. Thanks, Lisa. It's on page 291 of the Pew Bible. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Apek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Thus bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent, sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, were there of the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. So they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came to the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hopni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains come upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the Ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured.
Thanks, Lisa. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Please help us understand it now. And Lord, work through it in our hearts so we might live as your people and trust in the Lord Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. It's the climactic scene of Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, you've had over 40 years to see that movie, and so I'm going to spoil it for you now this morning. Over the movie, Indy has been racing against the Nazis to find the Ark of the Covenant. But now the Nazis have captured Indy, and they're taking the Ark to a remote site to test its power. You see, they believe that the Ark of the Covenant will make their armies invincible so that they can win the war. They think of it like a magic totem, as if God can be put in a box and used for human gain. And they all gather around when they open the ark and they look inside. At first, nothing happens. And then it seems like spirits come from the ark and flame appears. And with graphic 80s special effects, the Nazis literally melt and explode before the power of God. Now, Indy is a little smarter. He and Marion close their eyes. They don't look up on the ark and they are spared. Now, it's Hollywood rubbish, of course, but there is something to it. See, the Nazis think that God can be tamed, that the ark can be treated as a magic totem to be used by men. And actually, this way of thinking about God is, isn't that unusual, really. It's present all over the place today. See, we treat God like a cosmic vending machine. We just need to do the right thing, put in the coins, press the right code, and out comes our desires. Sadly, this is even present in many churches. Churches that preach that God is simply the means for our prosperity. You just have to have the right amount of faith, say the right words, give the right amount, beep, boop, out comes health, wealth, and prosperity. And actually, this isn't just a modern problem. Here in 1 Samuel, chapters 4 to 7, we see that God's people, Israel, have the same problem. They are treating God, in fact, they're treating the Ark of the Covenant the same way. But these chapters show us that God isn't like that. As we follow the Ark on its journey from Israel to Philistia and back again, we're going to see that God is not tame. He can't be put in a box. The Lord God is mighty. Mighty in judgment against those who treat him lightly and mighty to save those who call on him. And this is actually a message we need to hear because it's not just ancient Israelites and Hollywood Nazis who treat God lightly. It's easy for us to fall into it too. And so we need to hear the warning. We need to treat our God as mighty. And we need to see how we can turn to him who is mighty to save. We're going to race through these chapters pretty quickly this morning, but we're going to do it in three parts. We're going to see the Lord mighty over Israel. We're going to see the Lord mighty over his enemies. And we're going to see the Lord mighty to save. And because we're going to be flying through these chapters pretty quickly, I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open and follow along. I'll just put the key verses up on the screen today, but we're going to smash through the story pretty quick. If you need, there are pew Bibles on the seats in front of you. 
It all begins with seeing the Lord mighty over Israel. This term, we're working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, as we see God's people Israel longing for a king. Israel has rejected God as their king. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. And that includes corrupt leaders and priests like Eli and his sons. And it affects everyone in the land, even the righteous like Hannah, who we saw cry out to the Lord in chapter 1. But amidst all of this, God is working to rescue his people. He's raising up his king, a a king who will ultimately defend Israel from her enemies, who will point people to the Lord and ultimately point them and us to God's promised king, Jesus. God has started by raising up Hannah's son Samuel to be his prophet to declare his word to a people who are starved of God's word. But when this passage starts, Israel isn't listening yet. See, Israel is under threat from the Philistines. And the Philistines lived in a good part of the modern Gaza Strip, as well as a little further north. They were a constant thorn in the side of God's people, ever since they failed to drive them out of the land. And now Israel is under attack. It's possible this attack in the start of chapter 4 is the Philistines trying to attack Shiloh, the religious centre of Israel, where the tabernacle is. And as we read before, Israel goes into battle against them and loses 4,000 men. The Israelites are shocked. Verse 3, when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come against among us and save us from the power of our enemies. See, one of God's blessings, if they kept his commands, was that they would defeat their enemies. But now they've been defeated in battle and they rightly recognise that this is a punishment from the Lord. But instead of turning to him for help, they treat him like the God in a box. They decide to go and get the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. Don't miss how shocking this is. Instead of recognising their sin and repenting, instead of crying out to the Lord for help, they treat his Ark like a magic totem. As if they can manipulate God into helping them, helping them against God. As if they can manipulate God, as if God is just a box. So they do it. They go to Shiloh, they get the ark, they bring it back. The Israelites rejoice that the ark has come and the Philistines tremble. In fact, the Philistines in this story have a better memory of who God is than the Israelites do. Look at what they say in verse 8. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they've been to you. Be men and fight. This is the mighty God who rescued his people out of Egypt, who struck the Egyptians with every kind of plague. Who can possibly save them against the Lord? But as they see it, there's nothing to it but to bear up and fight. And they actually win. They defeat God's people. The armies routed, 30,000 Israelites die, and the Philistines capture the ark and carry it away. The Lord is not a plaything of the Israelites. He is a mighty God. He is the mighty God. 
But on this day, he has acted in mighty judgment against his people. And not just all of Israel in general, but he's actually mighty in judgment against Eli and his house. The picture zooms in. Just as God said, both Eli's sons die on the same day. And a messenger runs from the battle, clothes torn and dirt on his head, to bring the news to Shiloh and to Eli, who is 98 years old and blind, sitting worried by the gate. There's an irony here. Eli, he can't see that the messenger is in mourning, and so he asks him about the news. Verse 17 He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. In ancient Israel, the gate was where the elders sat to pass judgment. And it's where Eli has sat to to judge Israel for 40 years. And now, here in the gate, Eli falls under God's judgment, crushed under the weight of the fat that he and his sons have stolen from God's sacrifices. Eli's daughter-in-law is so shocked she goes into early labour. She understands what has happened and she tragically dies. She spells out what's happened for us twice so we really get it. Verse 21. And she named the child Ichabod, saying the glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. God's glory has departed from Israel. This is God's might shown in judgment against his people. They've treated him too lightly, as if he can fit in a box to be summoned at their beck and call. And so they face God's judgment. Let's hear the warning here. We can fall into treating too God lightly. We can fall into treating God too lightly too acting as if he's a cosmic vending machine who exists to satisfy our desires rather than the mighty creator and judge of the universe. And this isn't just a problem with prosperity theology. You see, we treat God too lightly when we don't think about him at all except when we come to church on Sunday. We act as if he doesn't exist six days a week and then we turn up on Sunday morning and expect him to deliver the goods. We treat God lightly when we get angry with him for not satisfying all our desires. We feel like we've held up our end of the bargain. We've done something good for him. He owes us. We treat God lightly when we don't take sin seriously. When we presume that we can disobey God, indulge in sin and then presume on his forgiveness. We treat God lightly when we act as if he's a cosmic vending machine that we placate through Bible reading, prayer and church attendance instead of recognising that he is the sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe, the judge of all, and we come to him only by his generous, undeserved grace. It is right for us to fear God. 
for us to treat him with the respect and the awe that he deserves. Yes, as God's people, we come to him with confidence in Jesus, but let's not forget that our sin required the horrible death of the Son of God himself. And we come to God only by grace. But it's not just God's people that he's mighty in judgment towards. The Philistines are about to discover the Lord mighty over his enemies. The Philistines cart the ark down to their city of Ashdod. You can see it on the map there. So they're sure they've won. They're so sure they've won because of the power of Dagon. And so they put the ark of God into their temple next to the idol of Dagon as a trophy. They think that they can put God in a box too. And now Yahweh can be Dagon's right-hand man, they think. But they've got a shock coming, chapter 5, verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. In the morning, right about the time when God's people would normally bring the morning sacrifice and bow down in worship to God, the Philistines come in and find Dagon bowed down before the ark. Dagon can't do anything about this. He's just a lifeless statue. And so they help prop him back onto his feet and stand him up. But the next morning, it's worse. Verse 4. When they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of God. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Dagon is rendered powerless. Again, he's face down before the ark, but this time his head's been cut off. He's been killed, defeated by the God of Israel. And worse, he's had his hands cut off. A sign that he's not just dead, he's powerless, utterly defeated before the Lord. The Philistines mentioned the Exodus before and it's happening again. The Lord of all the universe versus Dagon, the God of the Philistines, and it is no contest. God's might is shown, Dagon dead and buried. The author of 1 Samuel wants us to see that this is God's power on display. While reminded us last week that one of our key Bible tools is to look out for repetition. And ten times in these chapters, the author of Samuel shows us that this has happened because of the hand of the Lord. The Lord stretching out his powerful hand in judgment and salvation. He's stretched out his hand against Dagon, and Dagon's hands have been cut off. God has shown his power. And his hand is stretched out against Dagon's people, the Philistines. Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. The Philistines are struck down with a terrible affliction. We don't know exactly what the tumours are. Some think it could be bubonic plague, which is spread by mice and causes tumours in the armpits and in the groin. The Hebrew word literally means hemorrhoids. Whatever it is, It is very unpleasant for the Philistines. 
the Philistines, the vicious enemies of God's people, are facing God's judgment. So what do they do? They pass off the ark like it's a hot potato. They send it down to Gath. But in their attempt to get rid of the problem, it's like the Lord is being led on a victory parade through enemy territory. And the same thing happens in Gath. Again, the hand of the Lord. Again, a panic consumers. And so the people of Gath pass off the ark again, this time to Ekron. They realize this isn't going to work. They have to send the ark back. Verse 11, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. There it is again. The hand of God was very heavy there. The Philistines gathered together their priests and diviners to figure out what to do. And again, we actually see that they've got a better understanding of what's going on than God's own people do. Look in chapter 6, verse 3. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. They recognize that the problem is their sin. They've defiled God's ark. They've sinned against the Lord. And so they offer him a guilt offering. Five golden model tumors. Don't want to think about what they look like. And five golden mouse, mice. It's a way of offering back to God an image of what you want healed. And this is their way of giving glory to God, of treating the Lord with the respect that he deserves. Verse 5. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your heart as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Again, the Philistines seem to remember Israel's story better than Israel does. They do all of this to give glory to God, to treat him with the honour he deserves, because they remember how the Lord rescued his people from Egypt. And they don't want to be on the wrong end of that anymore. And so they do it. They concoct this complicated plan to make sure it's not just a coincidence, and the ark goes back to Israel on its own, carted by two milking cows. God has won the victory. He's not some genie in a box for God's people to pull out when they want him. He can take care of himself. And he shows his might in judgment against his enemies. But unfortunately, God's enemies are actually not just amongst the Philistines. The ark comes to Beth Shemesh, a town of Israel. In fact, this is a town of the Levites. Remember, the Levites were chosen to serve the Lord as priests. If anyone knows what to do with the ark, it's them. But in verse 15, they treat God lightly too. God said no one was to touch the ark, but they lift it down without a second thought. God says only bulls should be offered, but they offer the milking cows that pulled the cart. God said his ark should be covered when it's moved so no one can look at it, but they put it on a stone for all to see and then they leer at it. They treat God lightly and God stretches out his hand in judgment against them. Verse 19. 
And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? They're right. The Lord is holy. No one can stand before him on their own merits. He's not an object to be used. He is a mighty Lord to be feared, to be obeyed, to be cried out to. But they don't respond by turning to the Lord or crying out to him or repenting. They act just like the Philistines. They treat the ark like a hot potato and they send it off to the Gentile city of Kiriath-Jerim. Our God is holy. None of us can stand before him on our own merits. None of us is worthy to come before him. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Remember, we saw this in Romans too. Our God is the righteous judge, the holy God, the one who made all things, who leaves us without excuse. We, are all, we have all sinned and fall short of his glory. We are all left silenced before him. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Not for us and not for Israel. Because the Lord is not only mighty in judgment, he is also the Lord mighty to save. Twenty years passes. And it seems that during that time, God is working on the hearts of his people. Look in chapter 7, verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. The people are lamenting after the Lord. They've probably been suffering under the Philistines during this time. And like they did again and again in the time of Judges, they cry out to the Lord. And Samuel, God's prophet, calls them to repent. Repent is a fancy, churchy-sounding word, but it simply means to turn around, to turn away from sin and to turn to God. And that's what Samuel says. They're to turn away from sin by putting away their foreign gods and their Ashtaroth, and they're to turn their hearts to the Lord and to serve him. And the amazing thing is, this time they actually do it, verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. So Samuel responds by calling together all of God's people at Mizpah, not too far from where the ark is, so that he can pray for the people. They're coming together to confess their sin, to recommit themselves to the covenant. But all of God's people, together at Mizpah, not too far from the Philistine border, is too tempting a target. And so the Philistines gather their army to destroy Israel. What's going to happen? Have the people learned their lesson or will they send for the ark again? Will they treat God lightly and try to use him on their terms? Verse 8. 
And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. This time they get it right. Instead of manipulating God, they cry out to him. They call on Samuel, God's chosen prophet, to cry out on their behalf. And they do it trusting that the Lord is not only mighty in judgment, he is mighty to save them. To save them from the hand, the power of the Philistines. They've learned their lesson through all this. God can take care of himself. His hand is more powerful than Dagon, more powerful than the Philistines, and they don't need to manipulate him. They simply need to repent and cry out for his help. And so like Hannah cried out at the start of 1 Samuel and God answered, Samuel offers a sacrifice for the sins of the people and he cries out to the Lord for them. And the Lord answers, verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Imagine the scene. God's people spread out on the hillside. The Philistine army approaching, eager for blood. God's people anxiously waiting, hoping for God to rescue them. And then as the Philistines drew on near, there's a sound like a mighty thunder in the skies, the loudest they've ever heard. The Philistines are thrown into confusion. There's shouting. Hardened soldiers are looking around afraid, confused. Some of them start to run. Without Israel even raising a hand, the Lord has defeated his enemies. He is mighty to save. The hand of the Lord is now for his people. Verse 11. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The hand of the Lord that was turned against Israel and Eli's house in chapter 4, that was turned against the Philistines in chapters 5 and 6, and then turned against the men of Beth Shemesh in chapter 6, is now turned against Israel's enemies. They have been saved by their glorious, mighty king. What do we do with all this? Well, this God is our God too. We must not treat him lightly. He is the creator, the glorious king over all, and it is right that we fear him. We must not treat him like a genie or a vending machine. We come to him on his terms, not use him on our terms. This passage also shows us how our God is not only mighty in judgment, he is mighty to save his people. Israel deserved to go into exile, kicked out of the land because they've rejected the Lord. But the Lord is the one who goes out of the land into Philistia to show that he is the mighty king, to defeat his enemies and ultimately to call his people back to himself. The Lord is the one who takes the initiative to save his people. And he's done that for us too. 
like the men of Beth Shemesh, we should be asking, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? But the answer is we can. Not because of anything we do, not because of the sacrifice of a lamb made by God's prophet, but because God has taken the initiative to provide for us that once and for all perfect sacrifice in his son Jesus. Jesus who died to pay for our sins to take the judgment that we deserve and who rose again to show that the price has been paid and he is the risen king. And because Jesus is the king, we too are called to repent, to turn away from our sin and to turn to God in faith through Jesus, to serve him only by, as we saw in Romans, offering our bodies, all of our lives, as living sacrifices to him. Maybe you have been treating God lightly. Maybe indulging in sin as if it doesn't matter. Maybe not thinking about him at all except on Sunday. Maybe not bothering praying until you need something. Maybe expecting God just to deliver what you want and angry when he doesn't. If that's you, repent. See again who our mighty, holy God is. Turn away from treating him lightly and turn to him in faith through Jesus. Cry out to him for for help. Offer yourself all that you are as a sacrifice to him because of his mercy. And as you cry out and repent, do it confident in his forgiveness. Confident that our God is mighty to save. And in Jesus, we can rest in his mercy and grace to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. The creator of all things, the rightful judge and ruler. The one who is holy, who can stand before you, Lord. We come to you as a sinful people who have treated you in ways that aren't fitting for who you are who have treated you lightly. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. Thank you for your mercy and grace to us in Jesus. Thank you that through him we can come to you confident to find mercy and grace to help us in our need. We ask, Lord, that you would help us not to treat you lightly, but to fear you, to love you, to live in service of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.